Hey, this is uh, Adrian Sharp. I'm talking with Eric Tarloff. We're talking about our novels, our Hollywood novels. Mine is called The Magnificent Esme Wells. And Eric? Mine is called The Woman in Black. And mine is actually not due to be published until March. But please, I hope everybody who hears this will bear that in mind and go out and buy it as soon as it does appear. And mine's been out a few months. It appeared in April. And both Eric and I have written books that deal a little bit with our own family backgrounds, since we've set them both in Hollywood. Eric's from a much bigger Hollywood family than I am. My Hollywood connection was my grandparents who dropped their daughter, my mother, off at a Baltimore orphanage and headed west, living in Hollywood, following the racetracks, making trips to Vegas where they gambled. And they lived in a series of hotels and apartments in all around the tracks and in Hollywood, where I think my grandmother probably wanted to be a movie star. She was a very big uh, movie magazine reader, dreamer, knew all the facts, fashioned her hair and the fashions of the stars at the time, but of course never actually entered the business. But Eric, your family was different. Tell us about it. Well, my father was a screenwriter, uh, first for radio, then for both television and movies. Uh, and he was blacklisted in 1952 by the House Un-American Activities Committee, actually 1953 to be precise, and was unable to work under his own name for about 12 years. But he was able to work um, using fronts and then, uh, and then a pseudonym. And then uh, the first movie he wrote that actually bore his name again, which was in 1964, uh, won him an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. So uh, he came back with a bang. Uh, it was for a movie called Father Goose with Cary Grant and Leslie Caron. Terrific movie. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, I'm thanking you on his behalf. <laughs> He's not here to appreciate. And, uh, and my mother, actually, it's, uh, my mother, in some ways, is closer to your novel because uh, she was a nightclub singer and worked in San Francisco and Los Angeles. That's very interesting, since my character is sort of a mashup of my grandmother, my mother, and my uncle. Um, my mom, <laughs> left behind in Baltimore, went to school and did very well there, uh, double majored in bio chem uh, at the University of Maryland and uh, mm. could have gone to medical school if she'd wanted to, though she, what she wanted to do in the late 50s was just get married and have children and have the family that she never had herself. I wanted to ask you, how much resentment did your mother have toward your grandparents? I think we children had the resentment and my mother just on, had shame. She felt uh, shame. But you had resentment on and, her behalf. Yes. Resentment on her behalf. Uh, we hated them for what they did to her. And she felt only shame as if somehow this reflected on her. And she longed all her life to have the life that her brother had, which was a horrible life, with my grandparents out here in Los Angeles and Vegas because they had a second child. And he was seven or eight years younger than my mother. So his life 
out here was never going to school, living from one hotel to the other. Um, he never got an he education. Had, he, had, he had Esme's life. He had Esme's life, and he had to work as a janitor. And yet, despite this, my mother always wished she had his life. And so I sort of decided, I, well, let me give you his you know, life. So I gave uh, her my uncle's life, but I knew that her life, because she was this gorgeous woman, would uh, not be the life of a janitor, but instead she would find work as a cigarette girl, as a dancer, as a showgirl, and eventually as a burlesque. But uh, the thing that she would lack, being raised by these parents, is the thing that my uncle lacked, which is a, a sense of moral compass. And that's mm. something given to you as a child by a stable family with values. And so throughout my book, my character uh, struggles to find that moral compass on her own in a world where there was not much of one, the world of, uh, of mobsters and early casinos. So yeah. your character, uh, tell us where you came up with him. Well, I had this idea, actually, probably over 20 years ago, uh, the idea of a character who, uh, an actor, who in his personal life is, and in a way it's a reflection of what he does for a living, is a total chameleon, so that everybody right. sees him differently. And I wasn't quite sure how to tell it, uh, because that point of view, that those multiple points of view, I couldn't figure out how to incorporate them into a narrative. And then I came up with the idea of doing it as an oral history so that it's in fact, 37 different people who have known him over the course of his life and they all see him a little bit differently. So it's a sort of kaleidoscopic portrait of the character and he's an actor and a very good actor. So in a way that reflects the way his personality disappears into whatever role he's playing, I think. So it's an interesting technique because we see him through so many different eyes, which is sort of the way fans see a movie star or an actor filtered through his or her own experiences. Hmm. And that attachment can be many different things. Uh, it can be uh, very strong. It can be I sexual. It can be financial. It can be uh, the pride of mentoring from a teacher uh, because you have well, such a range. All of that is true, but I think even even an intimate might see different sides. Um, I mean, you get that feeling if you read about people who knew uh, Lawrence Olivier, for example, that he there was something so elusive about the core personality, and it may well have been related to his skills as an actor, that he, he, he may not have known who he was even. So I was um, curious what some of your technical difficulties might have been in sort of sustaining the narrative using the interview. Um, I know for my book, I switched back and forth in time. The technical difficulties actually disappeared as soon as I started writing. I found I could hear the voices. And so that was fine. I just didn't know how to begin for 20 years. And mm -hmm. then when I, when I figured that part out, it actually flowed more easily than any work of fiction I've, I've ever written. Uh, uh, it, it was like the character existed. You know, I could sort of see a, he occupied space 
and all the people who talk about him occupied space and their relations to him seemed so vivid to me that uh, that was not a problem. Well, there is a little bit of a disconnect because here's a, a girl who had the education of my uncle and I've seen some of his letters and they are very basic and filled with misspellings. And mm. I thought, well, I, I want my character to be eloquent. And so yeah, no, I, I think just it's sort of pushed uh, forward to give her this kind of a gorgeous voice that uh, that allowed her to be uh, very observant about the people mm -hmm. around her and maybe wiser and more manipulative and therefore more successful than my uncle. She had a sense of wanting to take care of her father and, um, and secure his fortunes as well as her own. My mm -hmm. uncle wanted to get away from his parents as soon as he could and he said <laughs> if they ever appeared at his house or hunted him down, which of course they weren't going to bother to do, being the kind of people they are, he would just shut the door in their faces and he won't mm. even speak their names. Um, he he won't call them mom or dad. He'll he'll just call them by their first names, their nicknames, and and even then his voice is sort of a dripping with disdain. My character had to leave that behind and uh, form an attachment with the father who was um, interested in his own fortunes and regretful about what he ended up realizing he'd done to his daughter. It's like too late. He hadn't thought about what it would mean for her to be moved to Las Vegas and, and to have to live in, in that uh, landscape and, and make her way. He thought only about himself. I was just going to say, he seems like a very doting father by the end, uh, perhaps as compensation for the ways in which he failed her when, he was, when she was younger. This is a misreading. No, I think that both he and she came to sudden realizations at the close. She that um, I've endangered my father rather than saved him, and mm. he thinking I've endangered I've endangered my daughter. Let me save her now, thinking yeah. that he could yeah, no. because he was always dreaming. Yes, I was asking you what you uh, since the the title of your book and one of the mysterious characters in your book is this woman in black who leaves uh, flowers or mementos on the grave of the movie star. So yeah. I was just curious what, what you think of the relationship between a fan and a star or what you might have been trying to say. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, what I was trying to say, I, I don't, I think I better, leave for each individual reader to decide, but I do think there's something, I mean, in a sense, no matter how vivid the star is, he or she is really a kind of blank slate upon which we project our own fantasies. And I think that's part of, in a way, what, what the book reflects. Everybody sort of sees what they want to see in the, in the star. I mean, I think it's probably true of political figures too. Anyone who's sort of vividly famous, but you don't really know, it's almost a Rorschach inkblot. And you sort of project onto that inkblot what you need to see. Um, and so some fans, I think, are just devoted or adoring. 
and some are dangerous because so their fantasies are dangerous and they project them onto this sort of unthinking, unknowing object. And suddenly, suddenly that person is, is a victim. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I would go that far. I, I think there's, there's an interesting character, I think, in my book. The girls and her fixation on the star just becomes much more attenuated. And that seems to be a sort of healthy way to respond to this. Uh, I did want to ask yeah. you how you felt this book fit in with the other books you wrote. Was it an outlier? Was it part of a trajectory or a whole landscape you've been working with? Can you talk about that well, a little? That's yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's my, it will be my fourth published novel, and um, I think they're all pretty different from one another. I don't think anyone reading them would necessarily think it's not like when you read. I mean, I'm not making this comparison in terms of quality, but it's not like if you read Hemingway, they're all basically you hear the same voice, and there's always a central character who is Hemingway. You can tell, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I think. I think my books are all rather different from one another. And um, if there's a common, there probably are a few common themes because one can't help it, but uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know what they are. (laughs) Somebody else might be able to perceive them. For me, I I always, you know, I work from story and this Aaron Copeland once was asked why some of his music was so harsh and modernistic and some was so euphonious and, uh, you know, conservative. And he said, it depends on what your given idea is that you're working with. And it has its own demands and requires its own style. And I sort of think that's how it is for me with these four novels or how it's been. Each idea requires a certain kind of treatment. And that treatment is probably different from the treatment that I use for other ideas. And I I just try to follow the logic of the story. They weren't necessarily Hollywood landscapes. They weren't about the movie business. No, no one was about Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was about a small college in Central California. Um, one was about Berkeley. And that was certainly, although not, not remotely autobiographical, I certainly lived through the times and the places that occur in, the, in that book. Um, so that was, I guess, the one where I was most directly related to my own experience, although none of the stories in it are real. And then uh, this one, well, this one was from a, an epoch where I did live in L.A. then, but I was, you know, I was preteen. So mm-hmm. not like I really experienced it as a, as a sentient being. Um, and I, I actually wanted to ask you a similar question, which is, did you spend a lot of time yourself in Las Vegas? What kind of research went into your book? Uh, two kinds, both uh, going there and researching it. So Going there as a researcher or had you lived there? Just- no, I just uh, started visiting in the late, mm-hmm. uh, maybe early 80s and would go to Vegas usually once or twice a year over you know, the last 25, 30 years um, and mm-hmm. was fascinated by the place, the upside down of the place where everything that's bad elsewhere is good there. I also (laughs) used uh, the archives at UNLV. They have uh, fabulous archives of all the strip and the casinos um, and Mm. the showgirls and the personalities um, who occupy 
inside every chair and stage. And then same thing, I live in L.A., so I see and know these places, although I had to go back to the archives at USC to look at the streets and how amazingly empty they were in the late 30s. I looked at a photograph Mm. of uh, Mickey Cohen's paint store where he had a bookie operation and it was on uh, Sunset Boulevard, which was nothing. It was a little concrete store surrounded by fields. I mean, the, the city was so empty and so undeveloped um, in the late well, 30s. Even, even in my youth, there was, there was a lot of unoccupied space in Los Angeles. Um, I mean, vast, empty lots. And there were still houses that looked like cowboy shacks that people uh-huh. actually lived in. They were occupied. Um, and that was true, I mean, even into the early 60s, I think. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's now become this sort of huge metropolis and it was always big, but it used to be kind of empty except for the downtown. Um, so, I mean, so that's interesting. And I, I mean, I had to do some research from, for my book because, uh, what grownups were up to in Hollywood in the fifties wasn't, wasn't really uh, known to me. I, I had to find that out. Exactly. I love finding um, like the the little secret places or things that might not be known. I I loved reading in Vegas how the musicians who played a couple of shows at the hotels would then meet up around 3 or 4 a.m. at Chuck's House of Spirits and sit in the parking lot and drink until Mm. dawn. Or I yeah. loved how all the extras uh, from the studios in the valley would go to this old horse barn on this branch property uh, where Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel would set up these illegal you know, gambling halls just for them. And they'd come sometimes even in costume. Uh, little yeah. known things just I find fascinating. I live with a family yeah. of history buffs and um, I think it's influenced my writing. For me, uh, this book was a bit of a departure because I left the ballet world, which had occupied my first three books. I was a trainee for Harkness Ballet in the 70s, and in my first two books, wrote about the New York City ballet world in the late 70s and early 80s at New York City Ballet and Ballet Theater, and mixed a combination of real-life characters, uh, Balanchine, Suzanne Farrell, uh, Barishnikov, uh, Peter Martins, and then characters of my own invention in a sort of a soup to create that world. And then but, in my third book, I moved... You did, I was going to say, you did do that in, in Esme as well. I mean, there are real gangsters. That's in that right. Book, along, with, along with invented ones. Yes, and and it's fun to do that kind of Forrest Gump thing where you take your character and then plant plant the character into the situations that really took place, but now your character mm. is part of them. So that was some of the fun for yeah. me when I was writing about Balanchine to actually have what happened to him and insert my character there. And same thing with the Vegas book. These were the real gangsters that she interacted with, uh, feared or loved which made it a lot of fun so Mm -hmm. i'm curious uh what are you working on next well uh i i'm working on a play um but i've just begun i I haven't uh i'm really just making notes now and uh sort of blocking out the scenes 
I haven't really uh, started writing the actual dialogue yet. Um, I had a play done at the Berkshire Theater Festival a couple of years ago, and I, a, a really wonderful actor was, uh, it was a monologue, but a 90-minute full-length monologue, and he was great, and it made me want to do more of this. Um, so that's a, that's probably my next project. But I'm also, you know, with the book coming out in a, just a few months, I'm uh, sort of trying to focus on that as well. And it's hard to think about much else. You probably know what that's like. Yes, it's very consuming. When the book first comes mm-hmm. out, you're writing all kinds of blogs and articles in support of it, traveling and, in support of it, yeah. and just it fills up your brain in a very uncomfortable way. Very you know, different I from writing. I kind of liked it. It's kind of exciting. I mean, there are so many landmarks, like when you first see the cover mm-hmm. or when you first get the galleys or, you know, there are so many, um, there, there are so many moments where you think, oh, wow, we've turned a corner here or oh, this is really happening. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I, none of that has happened yet. <laughs> so I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. I think seeing the galleys, um, very magical moment. It's finally in print, looks like a book. Very exciting. Yeah, it's real. It's real. That's right. And it, uh, it is. And um, to my mind, nothing really can compare to that. I mean, I suppose a recording artist, when he first sees the record or she first sees the record, it's probably similar. Although nobody, re- records are kind of disappearing, aren't they? But okay. Well, it's got to be sort of similar when the curtain goes up on the play that you had produced. There's something very yes, exciting was- about having your words read, right? Oh, absolutely. With an audience present. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, the only time I've ever experienced, the only other time I've experienced anything like that was when I was writing television and the the shows were shot before live audiences. And then, you know, you've got an instantaneous reaction. And yes, that was, that was exciting. Uh, Particularly if there was a comic line and it got a laugh, there was something unbelievably gratifying about that. And of course, if it didn't get a laugh, your soul died. So it was a little bit of both. Exactly. And and then, and we kind of miss that when we write these books because reading is a private experience and we have no idea how they're reacting um, as they're going through the pages. So there's, uh, that's that's interesting that you have. Yeah. Both experiences. I've had like friends say, do you really want me to tell you how I, you know, my reactions? I say, yes, because, I do this in isolation and I have no idea how it's being received. So any feedback is, is welcome. So um, who's your first reader? Well, my wife usually reads stuff as it's, as I'm writing it. There aren't many other people who look at the work while it's actually being produced. But um, Laura, I usually show her pages when I've got, got enough to justify it. That's interesting. Uh, my husband is uh, my first reader, too, and uh, he works in uh, television, so he's very oh. much a, we call him the story meister in our family, because you have to have story, you've got to have conflict, you've got to have the narrative engine, the rising action, you know, climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no writing anything dreamy or sort of... Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I, <laughs> I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's room for dreaminess, but there better be a narrative engine that's driving it, or it just becomes it just becomes sort of scenery. Exactly. Um, so you do TV writers. <laughs> well, no, I you know I always read fiction much more than I like watching television or or uh, or movies, but uh, I do believe in the in the importance of story. 
Yes, um, well, I'm telling him one day I'm going to write like a Marguerite Duras book, The Lover, that's, which I just assigned to my students, and they're all hating because it's ah. almost like a, a, she took a family album, flipped all the photographs up in the air, and then picked them up at random and wrote yeah. about them, and they're like, where's the story? Where's the narrative drive? And I'm like, you're just like my husband. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you could show them the movie. That's sort of so, that, that yeah, kind really. of the narrative drive. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, I'm, I think it's interesting that you move back and forth between uh, plays and novels. I'm pretty much just a novelist, and I'm mm. uh, about halfway through my next book because, of course, my book's been out, and I'm through all the stuff you're just about entering. Um, and I'm writing yeah. this time about uh, my... Uh, I had a very charismatic boyfriend with a very charismatic family, but they were all... Uh, riven with uh, bipolar disorder, which made oh them wildly engaging, but also very difficult to be with. And I discovered mm. that he was, in fact, murdered last summer. And uh, it brought all the memories back of that relationship and that family and the struggles and the magnetism and, you know, my efforts and my boyfriend's grandmother's efforts to sort of uh, bring some kind of normal life to uh, yeah. this man, and we failed. And uh, so I wrote an essay about this that appeared in a Tin House recently, and now I'm working on that material as a novel. Um, but what, it's strange. What is it, where is it, it in LA? Is it a Los Angeles it, venue? It is. Uh, um, it's set in Vicksburg, but the characters traveled. His father traveled to Los Angeles to be try to be a stand-up comic, and his mother went oh. up to Esalen to find peace. And so oh it's both California and not California at the same time. You really, yeah. you really like you. You gravitate to unstable uh, family relationships, don't you? I think there is a, strangely a lot of that in the last novel and this which is yeah. maybe why I'm so grateful for my utterly stable marriage and children so I can write about mm. this stuff but not have to live it anymore yeah uh huh yeah because you really in, in Esme you really do convey the, uh, the not just the instability but sort of the, the threatening nature of not really knowing where there's no one secure place in, in, in your character's life. Uh, I mean, that seems to be, if I were going to say, what is the sort of thread that connects your novel from beginning to end, it's searching for and never really finding uh, a stable place to land. I think that's true. I think that's been the theme of my mother's life and her brother's mm. life and clearly her parents' lives as well. Yeah. Well, tell me this. What do you think happens to Esme after the last page of the novel? Because I, I had a, I wondered about that. Um, in my mind, I think she goes east, probably to try to meet her father's family that she never got to know, and also mm. to dance in some of the new television shows that were starting up. The Jackie Gleason show and the Ed mm. Sullivan show had um, a phalanx of dancers that would appear almost you know, because they were sort of vaudeville shows on TV. So I think that's probably where she ended up. She ended up a June Taylor dancer. Maybe. Yeah. 
be a June Taylor dancer or what? Yeah, one of those. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe from there, um, you know, to New York, to some of the musicals. We will hope. Uh, you know, she's a survivor, and the original title of that book was Survival City. Uh, which my publisher mm. made me change, uh, but oh. that was sort of the the thrust of it, surviving. So uh-huh. it's interesting that you saw that despite missing the title. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think this was great, and I'm hoping um, your book has lots of success coming out in the spring. I look forward to reading it.